We are in the last of this series, okay? We've been in the good book, this 40-day adventure. I hope you have benefited from this focus on these key factors, these key themes, these key principles that we find in God's Word. And we're going to wind up at least the preaching aspect of this 40-day adventure with Can God Change Our Character? And we're going to go to Galatians chapter 5 for that this morning. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles, if you've got your smartphone, if you've got your tablet, whatever you're reading the scripture on, why well, go ahead and turn to that. Next week, we start a new series uh, called the, the Wilderness. We've got two summer series, The Wilderness and Hills to Die On. And The Wilderness is going to explore some of the wilderness moments in life as well as scripture. And uh, what are those hills that we as Christians need to be willing uh, to die on? So that's kind of a gl glance ahead at, uh, at the future. All right, Galatians chapter 5. At least 250 times the word fruit or fruitful appears in Scripture. Obviously, it appears in its normal or natural sense, referring to that edible produce of trees and shrubbery and vines. But there's also this spiritual sense as the visible behavior of a godly life. According to Genesis chapter 1, God's first command to humanity was be fruitful and multiply. The obvious obedience to that command was to fill the earth with other human beings. But I, but I have to wonder, was there an implied spiritual application even in Genesis chapter 1? Live in such a way that your actions and behaviors reflect the father of our family tree. That certainly applies to us today, that we're to live in such a way as to reflect the father above. Now, when it comes to my favorite fruit, my favorite fruit is a crisp, sweet, juicy fall apple. I just don't think it gets better than that. Not every fruit, though, has such uh, appealing nature to it. Uh, gourmets say that this Southeast Asian fruit called the durian is the best fruit in the world. The only problem is it, it just smells awful. And those who eat it say it tastes like onion-flavored custard. Now, I don't want any part of that. I'm here to tell you. That just doesn't sound good to me. But I, I think sometimes we do the same thing spiritually. We think we've got some pretty good fruit that we're going to produce for the Lord Jesus Christ and that what we're offering to the world looks pretty good, but I'm not sure it always leaves such an aromatic impression on those around us. I think that when Paul is talking here, he begins this marvelous passage on the fruit of the Spirit with a reminder of how stinky our lives can be when we live contrary to the Spirit's leading. And so uh, we're going to do this uh, sermon in two parts today. I'm going to do the first half. Uh, then we're going to do the Lord's Supper. Uh, and then Sean Green's going to come, and he's going to preach the, the second half. I'm going to deal with the fruit of the unnatural spirit. He's going to take us home with the fruit of the spirit. You see, because Paul, before he gets to that marvelous passage that we love, reminds us of where most of us have been and maybe where some of us still are. Galatians 5.16 says this, So I say, live by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. 
The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the Apostle Paul does a marvelous job of anticipating our ability to rationalize or justify our behavior. Before he gets to this part of chapter 5, Paul has this great discourse on our freedom in Christ and the grace of God. And Paul worries that when you read that, you're going to say, oh, Because I'm free in Christ and because God's grace is extended to me, therefore I can do whatever I want to do and there's no consequence to it. Uh, Paul does not want us to use our freedom in Christ and God's grace as an excuse or a license to do what, well, the Bible says is wrong. You see, there's this sharp contrast that is depicted here. Paul says we can behave in two ways. There's not three, there's not four, there's not six, there's there's two ways. You either behave according to the spirit of God or you behave according to the sinful nature that is inherent to us. The two are at odds. As a matter of fact, the word that Paul uses is a word about conflict or battle or a war zone. Now, yesterday, June the 10th, marks the 50th anniversary of the end of the Six-Day War. Those of you who are in my age category will probably remember back in 1967 when the little country of Israel took on Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, and in six days came out the winner of the war. It's called the Six-Day War for that very reason. Now, a lot of us deal with this six-day battle with the natural person inside of us, this sinful nature, and we often surrender, wave the white flag, succumb to the temptations and the sin, and then on on the last day, the the seventh day, the Lord's day, we, we try to clean up our act and we try to make things look a lot better and we try to do what God wants us to do and hope that our actions in church and on Sunday seem to balance out or counteract the actions of the previous six days. Doesn't work that way. This, this is not a six-day war and a, seven day vic- and a seventh-day victory. This is a 24-7, 365-day battle where we are constantly at war with this nature that is in us and the Spirit of God who wants to direct us. And if we're going to be true followers of Christ, we must depend on the Spirit of God to help us overcome the temptations and sins that destroy our relationship with God and destroy our witness to a world who sees only spoiled and rotten fruit in our life. Now, the words are not just unique to Galatians. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 7, Paul has his own personal testimony about how he is so frustrated with himself. I love this passage because it gives me hope that when I mess up, I'm not alone. Let let me summarize chapter 7 with these words, all right? I want to do right, but I don't. I don't want to sin, but I continue to do so. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Get the picture? Have you been there? Can you sympathize with Paul? Because I certainly can. Don't you find yourself battling with choices of right and wrong and too often choosing the wrong? 
We dwell on thoughts that we shouldn't. We lose our tempers and say things that we shouldn't. We act in ways that are inconsistent with our beliefs and inconsistent with our relationship with Christ. Have you ever been behind a vehicle that you could tell was, was driven by an angry driver? I mean, you know, you, you, you just notice. You, you, maybe, they're, maybe they're weaving a little bit, trying to figure out a way if they can get around the car in front of them. Maybe they're laying on their horn. Maybe they're using hand gestures. Maybe they're using that one-finger greeting that so often happens with people who are angry drivers. And then you notice on the trunk lid a fish emblem. <laughs> or you notice on the bumper, I love my church bumper sticker. How does that make you feel? I can tell you how it makes me feel. I, I get squeamish. I, I feel embarrassed. I don't even know the person in the car, but I get embarrassed because I see they've got, a, they've got an emblem on their trunk that suggests that they're a follower of Christ, but their behavior is so erratic that it says something completely opposite. I'm thinking, that bothers me. I know it bothers everybody else. <laughs> I, I said something to a fellow here at church not all that long ago. I said, do you drive a certain car? And he said, yeah, I do. What did I do? Cut you off or something? <laughs> and I said, no, I just wanted to tell you I like your car. That, that was all I wanted to say. I, I, I realize we preachers tend to make people feel guilty just by being around them, even when there's no guilt involved at all. But it made me wonder if there were other things that perhaps are going on. Sometimes I think we can say, well, I can solve that problem easily. I just won't put a bumper sticker or a fish emblem on the back of my trunk. That's true. And, and so the next time you act like an idiot on the road, people will just assume you're a heathen. They won't assume that you're a Christian. But that misses the point. The point is an inner transformation that leads to an outer change of behavior. Here's the real question. Here's the real dilemma. How do you act when nobody's watching? You see, when nobody else is watching, if you can live by the spirit and not by the natural person, then you're starting to win the battle. Like Paul, we want to be good, but so often we aren't. And that's why the battle is a 24-7 battle. And to ensure that no one misunderstands, Paul spells out what rotten fruit is and the spoils of a lost battle in our lives. And notice how verse 19 begins. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious obvious. Nobody really has to point out the fact that what you're doing is wrong. You know deep down in your heart it's wrong. If the Spirit of God is in you, he'll make it obvious of the things that are going on in our life. There's a sense of right and wrong that the Spirit brings into our lives and makes the wrong clear as day. But so that nobody mistakes or misunderstands, Paul spells them out again. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, those 15 descriptive terms can be categorized into four groupings. Personal immorality, fascination with the supernatural, uncontrolled self-centeredness, and drunken partying. From the filthiest to the angriest to the honoriest, 
These are the actions of the person who has no regard for the Spirit of God. Now, this, uh, we're not talking about the person who's trying to live as God wants him to live and stumbles and falls occasionally in one of these areas. Because, folks, I can tell you, I look at this list, and I may not struggle with some of these things, but I do struggle with some of the other things in this list. This list applies to all of us in this room. We do struggle occasionally. We're talking about the person who lives this way consistently and is okay living that way. Because that's the person in whom the Spirit hasn't taken over yet. Paul is pretty clear. The person who consistently lives this way will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's strong language. It's not to be taken lightly. Yes, we do not live under the Old Testament law. And yes, it is true that God extends grace to us. But wrong behavior is still wrong behavior and sends the wrong signal to a world who is desperate to find consistency in those who are followers of Jesus. And wrong behavior still has its consequences. That's part of the fruit of the sinful nature. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote, he said, Sooner or later, everyone sits down to a banquet of consequences. And that's one meal of fruit I don't enjoy. Your behavior doesn't just affect you. Your behavior affects those that you love, those that are close to you. It may even affect the kingdom of God. So be careful. You'll be recognized by the fruit that you produce. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Likewise, every good true... Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. See the consistency? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So here's the question we've got to grapple with. What kind of fruit does the world see in me? Once again, I can be pretty good at rationalizing, saying, well, I think the fruit I'm producing is pretty good stuff. So you might want to ask somebody that you love, somebody that you're close to, somebody that you can trust that will tell you honestly, eh, I don't know. Some of your fruit's a little iffy, a little, little past the sell-by date, if, okay? Because what we see and what the rest of the world sees might be two different things. And the world will never respect our claim to be a follower of Jesus if the fruit doesn't match the title we wear. Have you ever gone to a, a dry cleaners that advertises one hour of dry cleaning because you got a spot on the shirt and you need the shirt immediately and they tell you they don't do one hour dry cleaning, that's just the name of the store, but they can't get it to you until tomorrow? <laughs> kind of frustrating, isn't it? Why put that on your window if you can't do it? Why wear the title Christian if it is the Spirit of God that isn't first place in your life, if Jesus isn't first place in your life? You see, those of us who carry the name Christian but fail to act like the one whose name we bear only create frustration for those who are seeking the truth. We may be the worst signal to a lost and dying world. If we want others to see Christ in us, he will have to be in our hearts, in our heads, in our understanding, in our eyes, in our mouths, in our doings. In other words, he's got to permeate every aspect of our lives. 
There was a, a study done in the 90s by a marriage and ther- a family therapist counselor named uh, Dr. John Gottman. And what he did in this study is he invited 124 newlyweds, people who had uh, only been married for six months or less. He invited them into um, his office where he basically just got them to argue for 15 minutes. And then to make it a little bit more weird, he videotaped them while they did it. And then afterwards, he kind of studied it and watched it, and they studied it together. Now, I've done a lot of weddings. Um, I love newlyweds because they have such an innocence. Uh, They're almost a little naive as they go into their marriage. I'm sure, you know, my wife and I were the exact same way. Most newlyweds think of fighting for 15 minutes, and they're like, oh, no, we would never do that. We... We love each other, right? And those of us who have been married for a little while, we're like, 15 minutes? Psh, lightweights. You know, like we can go, we can go all night. Uh, but, but Dr. Gottman, his goal in, in these, with these 124 newlyweds, his goal was to see if he could predict marital success just by watching them argue for 15 minutes, just by seeing how they um, handle these short bursts of conflict. And so he, he looked for different cues while they were in this argument. He, he looked to see um, you know, how, what their body language spoke. Uh, he listened to how they communicated with one another, if, if they were affirming, if they would build each other up, or if they only tore each other down, if, if there was compassion. He watched to see if there was any kind of uh, physical touch during their conflict, if they would hold each other's hands, if they would give hugs. He, he, he kind of measured all of these things, and then at the end of this 15 minutes, minutes, he would make his decision right there. He would make his prediction and he would say, oh yeah, you're good. Or, oh, you have some things to work on. Or I'm kind of surprised you made it past the 15 minutes and you're still married. Like he would just draw these conclusions. And what he found is that he was actually quite good at making these predictions. He followed these couples for the next 10 years. And and at the end of that 10 years, he found that he was able to predict with a 94% success rate, which ones would still be married at the end of that time and which ones would be divorced. Just 15 minutes of watching these couples in conflict, he was able to predict with 94% accuracy which marriages were going to survive. His, His wife said in an interview one time, I don't know why we don't get invited to more dinner parties. I think I know. Like, nobody wants to party with a guy who thinks that's fun, right? Now, now the, great, the, the greater point for us today in this, the, for those of us in here who are Christians, those of us in here who would say that um, I, have, I have committed my life to Jesus, I am a Jesus follower, for those of us in here this morning, the question is this. If someone watched your life for just 15 minutes, if they dropped into your world and your life randomly at any given 15 minutes, if they watched how you lived, if they watched how you interacted with others, if people watched your life for just 15 minutes, what evidence would they see of Jesus living and working inside of you? What evidence would they see of Jesus living and working inside of you? If they watched your life, if they saw you at home when No one else was there. If they watched you at work as the pressures and the stresses began to 
mount, if they watched you in the community or if they watched you at a party with your friends or uh, if they watched you as you received some unexpected news, if someone watched your life for just 15 minutes, what evidence would they see of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, transforming your character? Tom mentioned earlier that Jesus very, very clearly says that if you want to know what kind of tree it is, you just look at its fruit. If you want to know if it's an apple or an orange tree, you just look at its fruit. It's very clear to see, and the evidence is the same for us. If we are filled with the Holy Spirit, then it should be evident in our lives and the fruit that it is producing. And that's what Paul talks about in the second part of our passage this morning. And just as he said in verse 19 that the works of the flesh, the works of the sinful nature are obvious. He's saying that the the fruit of the Spirit is pretty clear and evident as well. Look at what he says, Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance. Some translations have patience there. The idea behind this world is that we are, word is that we're able to um, bear underneath the weight of this world, the pressures of this world. There is a patience that we have to endure um, suffering and hard times. It's forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he says, and against such things. There is no law. So these works of the flesh, there is a law against that. God in his protection and provision for us wants us to rid ourselves of those things. But, but when it comes to the fruit that the spirit develops inside of us, there's no law against that. That can just continue to grow and grow and grow to where it multiplies into so many different aspects of our life. There is no cap on the fruit that can grow in our life through the spirit Now, the contrast here in the works language of verse 19 and 21 and the the, the fruit analogy of verses 22 and 23 is important because you see a machine in a factory works to turn out a product. You can just turn the machine on, let it do do its thing, and it's going to work to turn out a product. But that machine could never produce fruit. Fruit springs from life. And in the case of the believer, the life of the Holy Spirit living inside of us is what produces that fruit that Paul mentions in verse 22 and 23. The Spirit produces living fruit that is evident in our lives and is evident in our character. And so our love, joy, and peace becomes evident In our relationship with God, it becomes evident in our relationship with others. Our patience and kindness and goodness is evident in our attitudes towards other people. It is evident in the way that we act in our jobs. It's evident in the way that we react to our kids or our circumstances or that neighbor, God bless him, who just drives us crazy every time we see him. Our faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is evident in the way that we conduct ourselves, the manner of which we live as followers of Jesus. 
And these things are not good works that we strive to produce on our own. We may have a semblance of them by working hard and trying to grow in love, but it is not fruit that naturally develops out of our life. These things are not works-based. These are fruits of the Holy Spirit living and working inside of us, transforming us more and more each day into the image and the character of Jesus. And as a result... We are able to love others with the same rich, deep, compassionate love with which God loves us. We are able to have a peace that is unwavered by any circumstance that comes our way. We are able to have a joy that is lasting while our happiness may go up and down different seasons of life, the joy is consistent because of the fruit inside of us. We are able to be patient and persevere through difficult times and with difficult people. We are able to be kind instead of harsh, to exhibit goodness and generosity towards others. Because of the Spirit living inside of us, we are able to be faithful, true, and trustworthy. Our gentleness is shown in our our humility and our consideration towards others. And with self-control, we are able to be the master over our desires and our passions instead of allowing our desires and our passions to be the master over us. This is the fruit that the Spirit produces inside of us. And if you're anything like me, maybe you wish that you had a little bit more of this in your life too. But what I've kind of find in this Christian life is that oftentimes it seems to be this continuous game of tug of war. We're we're over on this side, pulling against this rope is the works of the flesh, the works of the sinful nature, and it's pulling as hard as it can. And over here on the other side is, is the the fruit of the Spirit that's pulling over here, and I feel like I'm caught in between, wavering back and forth, and back and forth I I go. And so just when I feel like I'm beginning to grow in my love for God and others, um, someone cuts me off in traffic, and and all of a sudden my smartwatch is telling me, hey, maybe you need to breathe for a minute because your heart rate just jumped up 100 points. (laughs) Just as I think, finally, finally, I'm starting to get a little bit more patient my four-year-old daughter, whom I love so dearly, looks me straight in the eye while continuing to do the very thing I just told her not to do. <laughs> As if to say, what are you going to do about it, Daddy? <laughs> and my patience flies out the window. And back and forth and back and forth it goes between the works of my flesh and the the fruit of the Spirit to the point that I think that following Jesus is just some spiritually meager existence of this perpetual defeat and minimal growth. But just as I start to lose hope, just as I start to think that the fight is not even worth it, that, that I'm never going to be able to do this on my own, God steps in and says, yes, and that's exactly where I want you to be because you can't do this on your own. And he comes in, Paul, Paul comes in in verse 24 and he gives encouragement and advice to people like 
me who sometimes just feel like my fruit is rotten. Look at what he says. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's one. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit too, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In these two verses, Paul reminds us that this is a process. And he points to two pictures that help us understand just the kind of process that, that we are in. Crucifixion. Crucifixion was a slow and painful form of execution. The criminal would be nailed to the cross and sometimes, as in the case of Jesus, would not take its final breath until nearly six hours later or more. Crucifixion was not an immediate execution. It took time. I think what, what Paul is doing here is he's using crucifixion as a graphic illustration to say that our old self is not going to die immediately. That when we repent and we nail our sins and our old life to the cross, it's going to take a while for that to finally die. But in the meantime, he points us to the second part. That while that old self is in the process of dying, and that new life is growing inside of us, we are to walk in step with the Spirit. That living by the Spirit and keeping in step with Him daily, that this is an ongoing activity that we engage in. And so what Paul is telling us here is don't be discouraged by this tug of war that, that we seem to be in between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit because God's grace is sufficient. And this is a process. One of my favorite passages is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. And in it, the author says, By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. By one sacrifice, by, by the sacrifice of Jesus, God has made those of us who have placed our faith in that sacrifice as our hope of salvation. God has made us perfect forever. In God's sight, listen, believers, you are a ten. And nothing is ever going to change that. He has made you perfect forever because of the sacrifice of Jesus. It's not because of anything you've done. It's because of what Jesus did on your behalf. He has made you perfect forever, even as you are in the process of being made holy. And so while in God's sight through Jesus, you are a 10, our actions from day to day may be on a sliding scale. And so there might be good days where I'm rocking it out at a seven or eight feeling good, right? And then there might be days where that rope is being tugged over to the left and I'm more of a two or a three. But what we have to understand is that as we are in the process of being made holy, this sliding scale does not affect your position and your standing with God because this does not determine this. Jesus' sacrifice determined this and you've been made perfect forever, even as you're being made holy. This is a process of growth of the fruit of the Spirit inside of us. And so just like you wouldn't plant an apple tree today and expect this bountiful harvest of apples tomorrow, the fruit of the Spirit takes time to produce in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit, it grows in us as we grow in Christ. 
It grows in us as we love how Jesus loved, as we serve how Jesus served. It grows in us as we share our faith with those who are lost and hurting and broken, with those who are far from God. The fruit of the Spirit grows in us as we disciple others and as we are being discipled by somebody. The fruit of the Spirit grows in us as we daily practice disciplines like prayer and study of God's word to allow it to shape and mold our lives. It grows in us as we daily prune out the works of the flesh that want to choke out the fruit of the Spirit from growing inside our hearts. And as we do these things, we begin to notice even greater evidence of grace in our lives. As we keep in step and we walk with the Spirit, we begin to see evidence of the Holy Spirit living and working inside of us, not by our own good works, but by what he is doing in us. And we begin to see and others begin to notice in our lives fruit of love and joy and peace and forbearance of kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit becomes more apparent in our lives and in our relationships because we have cultivated the soil of our hearts to allow the fruit to begin to grow. And we realize somewhere along the way, as we daily crucify our old selves, as we daily keep walk with the Spirit, somewhere along the way, we realize that God has changed our character. That he has done a work in our lives that only he could do. And the spirit is beginning to produce more fruit. And we begin to understand more clearly Paul's words in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 when he writes, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My hope, my, my hope is that if someone were to watch how I live for 15 minutes, that they would come away thinking, that guy's a work in progress. <laughs> but he's trending forward instead of backwards. You know, in those 15 minutes, I'm sure that they're probably going to see some flaws. They're going to see some imperfections. They may even drop in in a certain 15 minutes that I'm going to go back and ask for forgiveness and repent from later. But my hope is that they would also see evidence of God's grace working in my life and transforming my heart to where my character, my actions and attitude begin to look more like Jesus. I would hope that they would see a lot more of Jesus and a lot less of me. Maybe as you look at this list now, you're kind of looking at it going, eh, I've got a long way to go. And if that's you, you're in good company today because we all do. This fruit's gonna continue to grow and grow and produce in our lives as we continue to remain faithful to the Lord, crucify the old self, walk in step with the spirit in the new. We should not give up. We should not be discouraged. We should always rest and lean into God's grace to do the work in us that only he can do.